Welcome to a podcast of a sermon delivered at the Unitarian Society of Ridgewood in New Jersey. Our congregation is a place where you will find inspiration in the richness of diverse beliefs and the power of community. Detailed information about the Unitarian Society of Ridgewood is available on our website, uuridgewood.org. And now if you'll please join in the words for lighting the chalice, which are printed in your order of service. We light this chalice. Please take a deep breath. Try to listen carefully to the sounds in this room. The slight shuffle of the other bodies around you. Maybe you can detect wind outside the windows. The ticking of a watch or a clock on the wall. The breath of the person next to you. Hear the sounds of life being lived. And listen to the call of this bell as it rings out like a beacon amidst the noise of life. Breathe deeply and listen. So a new year has begun, but things don't actually feel that different, at least to me. It always takes me a really long time to remember to write the new year. I frequently, for months at a time, will write the previous one, because my life's rhythms have normally really been about academic years or congregational years, less than calendar years. But the turning of a new calendar year does give us an opportunity to try to embrace new ways of being new priorities, new understandings, and it gives us an opportunity to envision who we want to be over the next 12 months. It also gives us an opportunity to do a little bit of experimenting, and so this morning we're going to do a tiny little experiment of greeting each other, which we don't normally do here on Sunday mornings, but we're going to try it. So if you want to get up and move around, you are free to. If you prefer to stay in your seat, that is also totally fine. And I also just want to remind you to just be mindful of the fact that not everybody likes to touch, and it is flu season, so you can wave and smile, and if you're both agreeable, then you can shake hands and hug, right? Full consent. So go ahead, I'll ring the bowl when it's time to come back. Please greet one another in this new year. <laughs> See how this goes. like doing that. 
We gather together this morning for the first time in the new year. We gather with hope and expectation for what this year might bring. For each of us, those hopes are different, but certainly we come with a longing for peace, for justice, for strength in the trials in our own lives. We come with gratitude for the possibilities, for the delights that this year will surely hold, for the companionship we know the months ahead will offer us. We come together as different beings with different hopes, but with a common purpose to grow in mind and spirit, to work lovingly for justice, and to make this world better for all who inhabit it. Overflowing with a sense of wonder and possibility, determined to wring every bit of life that we can out of this coming year, committed to living these days with a loving heart, we gather together this morning. Every Sunday that we gather together in this space, we make a special time for quiet and contemplation. Depending on your personal inclinations, that time is used for meditation, reflection, prayer. This morning, I will take us through some time to reflect on this past year, some time to vision for the upcoming one, and then together we will remain seated and sing our hymn of reflection. So I invite you now to settle into your seat, to plant your feet firmly on the floor as you are able, to find a comfortable place for your hands to rest, and to take a deep breath in and let it out. As you breathe deeply, try to relax your arms all the way to your fingertips. Relax your legs down to your toes. Roll your shoulders to try to release that tension. Unclench your jaw. Feel your body and heart and soul gentle into this quiet place. Breathe in and breathe out. Mindful of your body and your breath, take a moment to think back on this past year. Let yourself remember the celebrations and the sorrows, the questions and the answers, the regrets and unexpected sources of pride. Remember the companions who traveled alongside you these past months. In the silence, let yourself remember. Take a deep breath. And as you keep breathing deeply, imagine a blank piece of paper. No markings, no letters, a blank slate. <coughs> Let your heart open to the new year and consider the future. As you breathe deeply, mindful of your body and your breath, what word or image materializes on that blank page? In the silence, let what arises arise. The new year is an opportunity to honor what was, 
to recognize what continues to move forward with us. It's an opportunity to set down or opt into what we carry into the future. It's an opportunity to envision what will be with intention and purpose, with hope and courage. We can commit ourselves to living with care and love. These past couple of weeks after the children are all asleep and the living room is empty save for me, I turn out the lights and I settle onto the couch and I just look at the Christmas tree. I love the multicolor lights in the darkness at the end of a long day. There's a hope that they symbolize, a warmth that they offer. And I know there's a distinct possibility that the tree will come down today while I am here, because today is January 6th, which for many people is the last day of Christmas decorations. January 6th is the Christian holiday of Epiphany. This day in the Christian calendar celebrates the revelation of Jesus's identity to the Magi, these wise men from afar. But as with any good story, there are lots of layers. At its most basic, the story, as is told in the Gospel of Matthew, goes like this. Some wise men come to Herod, who was the king at the time, and they ask him where the child is who has been born king of the Jews. Herod is surprised at the idea that in his kingdom a king was born, and he calls together his priests to try to find out what's happening. After he gets a little more information, he tells the wise men that he also would like to worship the baby, so when they find out where he is, they need to come back and let him know so he can also go visit. The wise men leave, following their bright star and searching for this baby. They offer their gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh, and then when they're done, they go home, but they don't go back to Herod to tell him the location of this child because they were warned in a dream not to. So the story says they go home by a different path. There's a lot in that little story. There is defiance against a ruler whose motives are clearly selfish and destructive. There's trust and faith in a star as a guidepost. But the story is also about the giving and receiving of gifts, and more subtly, it is about taking life as it comes, about being okay with some of the uncertainties inherent in existence, and about trying to live into the fullness of life with all its strange gifts and possibilities. And of course, this holiday comes quite quickly after the turning of our calendar year, a time when we ask each other and ourselves to pause and consider what we want our lives to look like this coming year. Some people enjoy making resolutions, others like to make vision boards, and still others simply take time to reflect on what has been and consider what might be. As I've done that last one, I do not like resolutions personally, and I am not a vision board maker, but as I have done that last one, I have found myself in reflecting on this past year mindful of the ways in which I leaned more into fear or a sense of scarcity than in a sense of abundance and hope. And then in thinking about what the coming year might bring, I have been considering that perhaps the greatest gift of the wise men who come from far away to shower a baby with goods for a king, perhaps the greatest gift they actually offer is an example of living with trust living hope-filled in the moment, and living with generosity, all of which 
I'm going to argue, classify in the end as living with a sense of abundance. So this reflecting that I was doing as the year was turning brought to mind an article by Walter Brueggemann titled The Liturgy of Abundance, The Myth of Scarcity. So Brueggemann is a theologian and a scholar of the Hebrew scriptures. This article was written for Christian Century in 1999, and it is definitely written for Christians. So I'm warning you about that at the outset, okay? Because I'm going to quote it, and the language is definitely Christian. But for those of you who don't identify that way, if you can get past the language that doesn't ring for you personally, there's a useful reminder in here for anyone who considers themselves committed to the work of justice and the liberation of all people. So he begins by outlining what he calls the liturgy of abundance. That is, the theme of abundance that runs through scripture. It begins, he writes, with the story of Genesis, which is ultimately, quote, a song of praise for God's generosity. It declares that God blesses, that is, endows with vitality, the plants and animals and the fish and the birds and humankind, in an orgy of fruitfulness. Everything in its kind is to multiply the overflowing goodness that pours from God's creator spirit. And as you know, the creation ends in Sabbath. God is so overrun with fruitfulness that God says, I've got to take a break from all this. I've got to get out of the office. End quote. So now, even if you don't believe in God as creator of the universe, consider for a moment the Big Bang and the subsequent development of life on Earth. In that random chance, there is beauty. In the continuance of life in the face of dire changes over millions of years, ice ages, volcanic ash that covers the Earth, meteor strikes, so much more, there is a persistence to life. One might echo Brueggemann and say an orgy of fruitfulness in life. Whether that pouring forth is from some supernatural being or simply from the very building blocks of life that perpetuate in the face of all manner of challenge, there is a fullness and wonder to what has happened on this planet. Brueggemann goes on to describe even more abundance in the Psalms where rejoicing happens time and again and when God blesses Abraham and his family, and if again we are to consider the long span of human history, advances have been made over and over that have indeed increased abundance. The harnessing of fire, the domestication of livestock, progress in methods in farming, the creation of industry. In many ways, the history of humanity is a history of increased abundance. Shortly after that moment when God blesses Abraham's line, though, the myth of scarcity, as Brueggemann calls it, is introduced into the scripture stories. It enters, he says, in the 47th chapter of Genesis, when Pharaoh worries over a famine. Brueggemann writes, quote, For the first time in the Bible, someone says, there's not enough, let's get everything. So if we look at human history, I can't say when that moment first happened, Perhaps the very first time one group encountered another, I don't know. But I'm guessing that all of us are familiar with the idea, if not that name, the myth of scarcity. It's the messaging that tells us that we must have more. And more than that, the messaging that tells us we have to prevent others from having if we are to have ourselves, because resources are finite. Brueggemann then describes the ongoing battle between the myth of scarcity, which teaches that there's not enough for everyone, 
that we have to scrap and fight to survive, taking from others, hoarding what's ours, living by economic transaction and in a state of fear over what we don't have, and the truth of abundance that teaches that there is enough, that we can make more, that generosity will lead to deeper, safer living for all. Brueggemann writes that the contest between the liturgy of generosity and the myth of scarcity is a contest that still tears us apart today. He dissects many stories through the scriptures, including when the Israelites become captives, slaves of the Egyptian pharaoh through a series of events that I will not detail. Pharaoh in the story of enslavement is, as Brueggemann puts it, as mean, brutal, and ugly as he knows how to be, and as the myth of scarcity tends to be. Eventually, Pharaoh lets the Israelites go. They have continued to multiply and experience abundance through their God's love, even while they were enslaved. And he agrees to let them go, but before they leave, he actually asks them to bless him. Brueggemann imagines the Pharaoh saying this, It is clear that you are the wave of the future. So before you leave, lay your powerful hands on us and give us energy. He argues that the text, as he puts it, shows that the power of the future is not in the hands of those who believe in scarcity and monopolize the world's resources. It is in the hands of those who trust in abundance. And God or no God, if we look again at human history, we see evidence of how scarcity and hoarding mentalities lead to human misery and atrocity. You can think of slavery, genocide, civil wars all around this world. And right now, here in our own country, there are a handful of ways, right in this very moment, that the myth of scarcity is playing out around political power and succession, around immigration, around medical care. But it isn't only in the epic stories of captivity and oppression and escape that we see it. It's in smaller stories throughout the scriptures and smaller stories throughout our own lives. There's this story in Exodus of the manna that rains down from heaven. So manna is this bread that God gives, and when it's hoarded, it turns to dust, but when it's shared, it continues to arrive. There's the Sabbath, this lifting up of the truth of abundance. It's a recognition that one need not work every single day, that there's time to stop and appreciate life. Every day doesn't have to be a race to acquire more. Then there are stories of Jesus, right? Among them, the feeding of the 5,000, where five loaves of bread and five fishes, when blessed and broken and given to all, become enough to feed multitudes. Brueggemann reads, throughout this piece of epic literature, the reminder that there is enough if we believe there's enough, that with generosity forefront, we can make sure that all have what they need. What Brueggemann says, though, is that this truth is these days, perhaps it's always been countercultural. Our culture teaches us something different. It teaches us that we always need more, that we have to do more and be more. Brueggemann puts it this way We who are now the richest nation are today's main coveters. We never feel that we have enough, we have to have more and more, and this insatiable desire destroys us. We are torn apart by the conflict between our attraction to the good news of abundance and the power of our belief in scarcity, a belief that makes us greedy, mean, and unneighborly. We spend our lives trying to sort out that ambiguity. He draws a particular contrast, remember this is 1999, between 
the Bible and Nike ads. And he says that many Christians like himself, in spite of their desires, probably spend more time watching Nike ads than reading the Bible. And the Nike story, he says, teaches that whoever has the most shoes when he dies wins. The Nike story says there are no gifts to be given because there's no giver. We end up only with what we manage to get for ourselves. The story ends in despair. It gives us a present tense of anxiety, fear, greed, and brutality. It tells us not to care about anyone but ourselves, and it is the prevailing creed of American society. Now again, Brueggemann is arguing from a Christian perspective that asks people to lean into God's abundance, the God of his Bible that blesses and keeps safe and feeds and heals. And I've said it before in this space, I do not consider myself a Christian. My conception of God is not as a bounded entity that has the power to bless and heal and save. But I hear in his call to lean into abundance, I hear in it a call to lean into our abundance, human abundance. He writes that the Nike story says there are no gifts to be given because there is no giver. But there's a different story, and it's embodied in the wise men in the story of Epiphany who take a risk, travel far through unknown dangers to follow a star. Consider for a moment the absurdity of that trust, right? And then who offer gifts of fine and treasured items to a baby. <laughs> Consider for a moment the absurdity of that sharing. And then they challenge authority and greed and violence by eluding a king and denying his demand. Consider the absurdity of that risk had they been caught. These things seem on their face absurd by our standards of what is valued and meaningful. Think for a moment how those wise men would have behaved if they believed in scarcity. They would have scoffed at a star that asked for such an investment. They would have laughed at the idea that they would offer gold and precious materials to a baby. They would have understood and endorsed the power hoarding of King Herod rather than subvert it. But instead, they met this strange moment with trust and faith and generosity and resistance to a culture that asks of us betrayal of what we know to be right. They met this moment with a sense of fullness and abundance. And every single one of us can do that, can cultivate a position of fullness and abundance from which to meet our lives. Every one of us can be a giver, right? A giver of time, talent, money, love, a giver of trust and faith. Every one of us can be a risk taker and a resistor, a person living with abundance. We, humans, regular people, can be the ones to make miracles happen by caring about each other, working hard for and with each other, giving to each other. We did nothing to earn the lives that we have, nothing to merit them being good or ill. And yet here we are, on this blue dot, experiencing all that life has to offer, all its good and its bad. Here we are, blessed challenged, holy, sacred creatures with the capacity of bringing life to each other, the capacity of healing each other, helping each other become the best beings we can by offering each other all that we are, all that we have, without a sense of scarcity. Our lives offer us the possibility for depth and realness and meaning and heart and soul and the kind of 
reflective, intentional living that leaves us connected and whole. Brueggemann is right when he says at one point that the market ideology wants us to believe that the world is profane, that life consists of buying and selling, weighing, measuring, and trading, and then finally sinking down into death and nothingness. We forget that things are just things. We hold tight so often <clears throat> to things that don't really matter. We worry about whether our children have the right shoes, right shoes by whose standards. We worry about whether or not we'll have the money to buy the latest technology the moment it comes out. We worry about getting our kids into the best preschool so they can get into the best elementary school, so they can get the best high school. Really what we need is to love and care for each other. I say we because I suffer from this no less than anyone else. At our worst, we do think our lives consist of buying and selling, weighing, measuring, and trading. But there is a different story, a story in which life consists of knowledge and love, compassion and joy, heartbreak and sorrow, singing and beauty, meaning and reflection, and yes, eventually death. But that's a story where life consists of living abundantly, working hard for what is good, rejoicing and grieving, feeling and experiencing the full richness of this gift of life that we've been given. Existence is a gift, even though it is alternately filled with challenge and beauty. And the best way, I think, to appreciate a gift, this gift in particular, is to live intentionally, to take seriously that gift. Rilke reminds us in that brief selection from Letters to a Young Poet that taking it seriously doesn't necessarily mean having all the answers or hunting down all the answers. It doesn't mean, as Walsh noted in our first reading, being able to put away everything from the past neatly and squarely and walk into the next step. Living intentionally, taking life seriously, means embracing what is while we look to what is possible. It means recognizing the gift of a star, seeing the risks, and still being guided by the possibility. It means recognizing the challenge of a culture that asks us to believe in scarcity and embracing instead the conviction that there is enough if we are willing to share. It means understanding the true conditions of humanity around the world and knowing the risks of resisting the powers that would perpetuate oppression and then still taking a stand because you can imagine a better world. Living with intention and taking life seriously means living with a certain amount of trust, living hopefully in the moment you are in, and living with generosity means living abundantly. That's the lesson of the Magi. Their story, the epiphany story, teaches us to live each new day of our lives with care, open to answers we have yet to uncover, committed to envisioning what the world might be, even if that visioning asks us to consider giving up our own safety or power. Their story teaches us to resist what we know to be wrong, to offer what we have to others, to risk our hearts and perhaps even our bodies for what is right and good. Their story teaches us to let go of the myth of scarcity and embrace the truth of abundance that goes well beyond material abundance and into an abundance of spirit, compassion, trust, and love. May this year bring each of us, over and over, opportunities to practice abundance, abundance that leads to fullness and wholeness and an ever-deepening connection. So may it be.
Please join in the words for extinguishing the chalice there in your order of service. We extinguish the flame, but not the light of truth, the warmth of love, or the energy of action. These we carry in our hearts until we are together again. May laughter, joy, friendship, courage, love, community, and great overwhelming abundance be yours this year. Go in peace.